welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Center for Economic and Social History. I'm your host, Ben Schneider, and our guest for this episode is Raya Thomas. Raya is a DPhil student in Economic and Social History at Oxford, and I spoke to her about her MPhil thesis on the intergenerational social mobility of migrants to England during the late 19th century. Her thesis used a new method for linking people between censuses, which allowed the first large-scale linking of women between censuses, and it won the 2018 Charles Feinstein Prize for the best Oxford MPhil thesis in Economic and Social History. I began by asking Raya to give us a bit of background about the history of the British census, how it was compiled, and what information it contains. So census taking has a really long history, even globally, thinking back to the ancient Greeks. And in England, uh, especially because of the relationship between the church and the local population, we have some really interesting demographic information about what local populations looked like, stretching back many centuries. But it wasn't really until the 19th century that the Brits or the English started developing this uh, more scientific interest in the systematic collection of data about the entire population. And it wasn't really until the census in 1851 where we really find standardized, rigorous approaches to enumerating the entire population of especially England at the time, although they enumerated essentially the entire sort of British Isles, Scotland, Wales, um, and Ireland as well. My work focuses on England at this period, so that's why I, I speak a lot about the English because I work on the English data. So what happened was um, every 10 years, Parliament would approve the funds necessary for the census because you'd imagine trying to capture a detailed record of every single person living in your country is a very expensive as well as a very difficult undertaking. So Parliament would approve funds and then a London-based office, which is called the General Records Office. The General Records Office sets up the bureaucratic machinery that's necessary to literally take an inventory of very detailed information about every single person living in um, the jurisdiction. So what happens is they came up with a questionnaire, sort of like a survey that we have today. Um, in 1851, it contained information about the address where you were living, the parish where you were living, uh, your marital status, your first and last name. They were, even in 1851, they were really interested in the issue of migration, in large part, we think, because there had very recently been the Irish uh, famine, which had caused massive amounts of people from Ireland to come and be settled in England, um, as well as other parts of Britain. Uh, and the authorities were very um, curious to know what had happened to these people. So the information on birthplace has always been in the English census very carefully enumerated because the central authorities were really interested in that information. Occupation was really of interest to them um, primarily in these early years. So I'm thinking of the 1851 and 1861 censuses. They were very keen on collecting occupational information was for actuarial or life table purposes. Your occupation was seen as having uh, significant implications for your health. And the central authorities really wanted to sort of understand health and mortality. So occupational statistics were collected because they wanted to understand the health of the population. It wasn't until later in the 19th century that the central authorities became more interested in using occupation to measure sort of macroeconomic, large-scale occupational structure of Britain. And we sort of see in the collection of the census in the later periods sort of how the enumeration of labor shifts toward this idea about sort of like paid full-time labor away from more 
enumeration of labor that was maybe more sensitive to sort of the daily experience of people as opposed to the workplace. So essentially how it worked was um, the central statistical offices and the Board of Trade got together and decided what questions would be interesting. They came up with um, a, like basically a survey that was very simple. It's like a chart that you fill out. Um, it was very interesting. They were very thorough in how they prepared this information. So they prepared one in Welsh that was written in Welsh. They had, um, they're called household schedules, these sheets that people would fill out. They had them in Yiddish and many different languages that the enumerators would be able to hand out to people on the day based on what language they spoke. And they did this, they had schedules for ships that were docked in port. They were just incredibly thorough about how they did this. So they prepared all these schedules and they distributed them to local parishes. Uh, and it was the responsibility of sort of the local authority to find people who lived in the local community who were of good standing. Um, and these people would be paid to become enumerators. And that's kind of a funny word, but it just means the person who's responsible for making sure the data is collected. So these enumerators are people who, for example, lived in your little town and they received a stack of these schedules and they distributed them before census night to each household, each residence, each dwelling in the, in the town. And then on census night, the enumerator went around to each of these homes and collected the finished household schedule. And if the people hadn't filled it out properly, or maybe they couldn't read or write, then the enumerator would fill it in for them and ask them verbally these questions. So the census enumerators at the local level compile all of these household schedules and they go through them page by page and they transfer this information into what's called a census enumerators book, which looks very much like the household schedule, but they basically do the first step of standardizing this data. So we don't actually have those household schedules where the individual people from 1851 would have written, and it would be super interesting to have that, but we don't have those. All we have is the census enumerators books, which is still pretty cool. Um, so the census enumerators would take all of their household schedules and write them into the books. Um, they would do a couple, you might say, like back-of-the-envelope calculations just to summarize the data in them. They would take all of the household schedules and put it with the census enumerators book, and all of that would be sent to London, to the General Records Office, for processing. So the clerks in the General Records Office go through all of this information themselves. They look at the census enumerators book, and unless they have questions or suspicions, like the data doesn't quite look right to them, they probably never really looked at the household schedules. But we can really see in the, all the census enumerators books, which we still have, you can see where the clerks in London at the time went back to the household schedules and maybe made some changes here or there if they thought that the enumerator had gotten it wrong. So after the clerks are satisfied that they've got it right, then um, the household schedules were destroyed, which is why we don't have them anymore. But all of those books were kept, um, and they eventually ended up in the National Archives. And then in the, ooh, actually I'm not gonna speculate about exactly when it was done, but ev almost every page of those census enumerators books um, has been photographed and is available to view online. So you can go to the National Archives um, and see all of these, the pages from the census enumerators books from 1851 to 1911, which is, really very cool and very useful to historians who want to use this data in a variety of ways. You can find those by location, if people are interested in their yes. town, for example? Yes, you can. Um, sites like Ancestry.com or Find My Past are also very helpful, um, and the 
you will always be able to look at those pages for free. You would never have to pay for those. So sort of the final step in how the census data comes to us today is in addition to those photographs being available, a team um, from the University of Essex, led by um, Edward Higgs and Kevin Schur and several others, basically took all of those images and they worked with Find My Past. And Find My Past transcribed all of those photographs into raw data, like in database format that you would see in like Excel or something like this. And they passed all of that data to this research team at Essex and the guys at Essex um, transformed all of these observations into a database, um, which is called ISEM, the Integrated Census Microdata. So we have all of this individual information from everybody who was living in England, and again, further afield than that, but I specifically look at England, from um, 1851, 1861. We don't have the data for 1871 yet, but 1881, 1891, and 1911, it's all there. It's an incredible resource, and we're just, it's really transformed what we can say about the past, that we have a data set like this available. And that's over 100, is that right? Over 100 million yeah. observations? Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember the population statistics over that time period yeah. and adding them all together. So they had to clean, clean a huge amount of data to do that. Staggering. Is there much change in the way that, so you explained how the census was collected. Is there much change in that over the period that you look at or is it fairly consistent? Yeah, toward the later part of the 19th century, so here I'm thinking of especially like 1881, 1891, there were different questions that started to be asked, which reflect how um, especially elite Victorians saw the social problems of the day. So you start to have specific questions about disabilities. Is the person blind? Uh, you start to have questions about language. Um, you start to record also um, more detailed information about the type of dwelling people were living in at the time. How many rooms? Uh, how many rooms does your house have? How many families are cohabitating in this space? Um, that information isn't available for earlier census years, but it does sort of change over time. And again, as I mentioned earlier, there's a really interesting shift in the um, enumeration of occupations that takes place later as sort of um, macroeconomics comes even more to the fore in government policy, they want to start looking at the occupational structure of England more and more for the purpose of understanding at a national level what's what's happening. Right, so you've, you've given us a great overview of, first of all, how this was collected, with the historical context of the, um, of the census, um, and also, also a sense of how rich this data is. So how have economic historians used both the, the UK census and other census data sets in the past? And I say past, as you've said, very recent past that yeah. this has been really available. Yeah, um, it is such rich information. It's been put to um, a wide variety of uses. And it's really interesting to be studying this here in, um, in England still, you know, at Oxford and, and Cambridge and the LSE, these institutions, as well as a lot of others, but have been really involved in sort of emerging social sciences like the study of intergenerational mobility. I think some of the first work on that was published right around the turn of the 20th century. And these guys were not only then the people who were formulating the questions on the census, but they were starting to put it to use in devising new ways of thinking about socioeconomic questions that have a direct sort of lineage into how we think about these things today. And that's both a challenge for us as contemporary historians, but also it's um, really fascinating to trace that lineage straight back to the collection of census data. 
So most of what we know about the occupational structure of England, we know from the censuses. A lot of economic historians have used the occupational information there to say how important agriculture was or to say, you know, people had been employed almost exclusively in agriculture, say, in this district, but over successive decades, we can see how much of the population left agricultural employment and moved into maybe tertiary sectors like service or that kind of that kind of thing. We've looked at migration using census data, although, again, they're also sort of like parish registry data is really also very helpful for looking at migration, where we think about how much cities grew during this period. Um, you can look at what percentage of the population, say, in London was born in London as opposed to um, maybe in a more rural district. So a lot of what we know about migration in England uh, comes from census data. Certainly the occupational structure and occupational shifts, which we associate with the Industrial Revolution, comes from the use of census data. Although, as perhaps we'll talk about a little later, there's some trouble with using the occupational data to look at occupational shifts. Your interest is in intergenerational mobility, mm-hmm. and that always or certainly tends to involve linking people. Um, and that's something that uh, has been done a lot more recently, um, I know in the U.S. as well, when we have digitized census data. So what's the purpose of, for non-economic concerns? Why, why do we bother um, linking people through the census? This and I guess also, what does that actually entail? Oh, yeah. The point that goes along with that. Fair enough. So I am interested in intergenerational mobility, but that's kind of just a fancy way of saying I'm interested in what happens in the long run to individuals, as opposed to some economists want to look at the long run in terms of what happens to GDP or what happens to the fates of nations in the long run. I'm really interested in the individual experience, but I'm really interested in the long run, and that's why I look at intergenerational mobility, which is where you compare what happens to one person to what happened to their parent or their grandparent, that kind of thing. So the reason we would link people in census data is because we want to be able to compare the same type of information about a person um, from one decade to the next. Or ideally, you would love to be able to get as many observations for that person as possible. Traditionally, in a lot of um, historical studies, we're really limited in our ability to link people over time. You very seldom have the opportunity to look at the same type of information for a person in more than one year, because often um, in the past you only really have data once. So anytime you can link someone between records, especially the more credibly you can link them, the more interesting it is to look at long-run outcomes. And particularly as economic historians, we might be concerned about outliers, where if you only look at a person once, You have no way to know if that one year, that one day that you see them is representative, actually, of their whole life experience. So the more data points you can collect for someone, the the better. So that's why we would really try to link people over time, is so we aren't dependent on just like one observation, where we're not really sure whether or not that's representative of their life course. So you have maybe, I guess a crude way of saying this is basically if you, you find John Smith or Jane Smith in the 1851 census, and then you have some way of knowing that that's the same person in 61 and so on, then you can see, do they go from um, one occupation to another, one place to another, and so on. That's a tricky example because it would be hard to know that you're matching the same same person. So then uh, what are some of the, to get more technical, the ways that, that you and other, econ- well, before we come to your research, other economic historians and social scientists have 
have linked people through the senses? Yeah, that's a very um, appropriate way of asking that question because usually the first step, and to be fair, this is still pretty new. So the first time this was really attempted was like in the 1980s. A guy named Richard Steckel kind of came up with, for the first time, like an official proposal for how you might go about linking people in population data sets where we don't have national identifiers yet. And we still pretty much use his method in the main. The next guy to really move this forward, and I'm sorry for the gendered language, but it is primarily men who have been working on this in the past. Joseph Ferry started publishing in the 1990s about this, and he added a few improvements to Steckel's method. But basically, this is kind of the gold standard for how we do this. So what these guys do is they, first of all, realized right away the problem you've pointed out. We have a lot of Jane Smiths and John Smiths, and it's very difficult to be sure if you just pluck at random two people out of the population that you're dealing with the same John or Jane Smith. Um, so that what they do right away is they drop anybody, so they get rid of anybody, or don't look at anybody who has a common name. And the threshold for assessing whether or not someone's name is common is actually stunningly stunningly low. So you imagine the entire population, millions and millions of people. Um, I think the most common threshold is five. If a, if a first name and last name combination occur five times or more, they get rid of them altogether. Some people use 10, um, but that's, that's it. They don't even look at them at all. Um, and that's understandable because you, you would have this trouble. And even with five, you might argue, you know, how can you be sure you've got a one in five chance of matching the right person? They also drop uh, women, and there's sort of more than one, there's sort of two reasons why women are usually dropped, but in terms of the mechanics, it's assumed that all women or most women change their names when they get married. So we assume we can't follow them, so we're not even going to try, so we drop them as well. So right off the bat, you drop 50% of your population by dropping women, and then you drop probably 95% of your population because they have common names. And what you're left with is kind of like 5% of men that you will try to link from one census to the other. So one of the other interesting artifacts of historical data is that people don't always, in the past, give the same birth year for themselves. Um, so usually when you're trying to match people between one census and another, you'll allow their birth range. You sort of give them a birth range and you allow that to change over time. And, and that's generally about it. Um, some methods would also include some sort of signifier for birthplace, although that's not necessarily as common, because there also you kind of have some instability over time. Um, and that's it. So you'd look for like a John Smith who was born in 1841 or maybe like 1837 to 1842, and you'd look for them in, you know, 1851 and 1861. One of the big contributions of your thesis is a new, a new method for doing this. Yeah. So how, what's the, and, and if I remember the, the framing of this right, it's network persistence linkage is the, the sort of um, background to this. Mm. What is that, and, and sort of mechanically, can you, can you walk our listeners through how it works? How, did you, how do you sort of implement this? Yeah, so this is a relatively new idea. I had a couple... Um, really interesting conversations with my supervisor who was supportive of my quest to find a new way to link people. 
because I, I wanted to follow migrants in uh, people who had migrated into England to look at intergenerational mobility, and the majority of those people are women. So right off the bat, I was really hesitant about dropping women because they form the majority of my population, and I wasn't really sure what that would do to my findings. And I wasn't also confident that anyone had really tried to link women before. I couldn't find in the literature that it had been attempted. So we had this conversation. I said, if I could come up with a way of sort of finding a unique identifier for somebody where I can get women as well as men, is that worthwhile? And he said, yeah, go for it. Um, so I kind of went home and I stared at the wall and I thought, all right, what is it about your, what is it about you that makes you unique? And especially, I stared, I'm pretty sure I was staring at some census enumerators pages, thinking, okay, like, what's on this page where I could say, um, that gives me enough information that I would expect to be the same from between decades? Because a lot of it would change. You know, if you think about maybe you could use their occupation and see if you could, you know, sort of find them with their occupation. A lot of what we know, especially from autobiographical literature, is that people didn't always have the same occupation from time to time. And you really wouldn't want to, especially if you're looking at mobility, you don't want to rule people out by only keeping people who have the same occupation over time. But what really, it was a really beautiful thing about a census enumerators page, and hopefully people will be curious and have a look at it, is um, when you look at it, there's a lot of visual information about what a household is like that's just evident from the way the information looks on the page. You can kind of tell who's whose child, maybe who's whose grandparent, where people cluster together just by looking at the page. And uh, this made me realize that you could really infer something about neighborliness from the census. And at the same time, I was also doing some really interesting reading about early modern London, because our master's here is a taught master's. So I was doing some interesting reading on early modern London, and there was um, a really wonderful study on Southwark that showed that over time, especially long periods of time, even when families moved within this parish, they tended to stay near neighbors that they had formed bonds with over time. And there's a scholar um, in Arizona at the moment, her name is Laura Tabili, and she had done a wonderful study about migrants in South Shields, um, which is a port city in England um, in this period. And this was a sort of a sociological study. And one of her strongest findings was that the networks that these migrants had went from being very local in scale to being very global in scale. And then sort of coming onto that as well, the other class I was taking at this time uh, was looking at working class autobiographies written by people in England um, in this 19th century period. And something that was really striking from these working class autobiographies was not only how much people moved constantly almost over their lifetimes, but that even when people were sort of vagrants, which would be people who didn't necessarily have a fixed dwelling because they were at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, they tended to wander, not necessarily randomly, but they would go somewhere where they knew someone or where someone they knew had been. Um, and when, like, when women would go on the tramp, there's a couple really wonderful autobiographies I've read, even though I haven't read extensively, of women who were vagrants. It's really clear that these women, they tried to travel together as much as they could. So this idea that um, you don't necessarily have to expect that an individual is this atomistic, isolated person, but really, at least in England at this time, it's a much safer historical assumption that people tended to live with or near people they knew, even when they migrated, which a lot of the population was moving constantly. 
So my kind of big eureka moment was, okay, what if we sort of enrich an individual's own identifying information with the identifying information of the people around them, their neighbors, their family, even maybe servants, because you might think servants might move with the family over time. So essentially what network, and I just call it network persistence linkage because I had to call it something in my thesis, otherwise it gets it very sense. cumbersome. It's a illustrative um, name, so yeah. Yeah, so basically we can allow for a very non-unique individual identifier, but because we can add in so much detail about the context of your household, and we can just look for even one person to be living near you in the next census, we stand a much better chance not only of creating a unique identifier for each person, regardless of how common their name is, um, but we stand a much greater chance of being able to uniquely match you from census to census. So there you could keep Jane Smith born in 1841 Absolutely. in the 1851 census, and then because you're, if I remember correctly, you're taking the people who are literally around her mm -hmm. in the enumerators books, yeah. which would have been the people who lived nearby on census night, yeah. and then adding those into a, an, an identifier that's, this is me plus all of my neighbors and their identifying information, mm -hmm. then you're linking that individual with all of their neighbors to, you're, you're trying to find that individual with, I think, is it some of their, some of the same neighbors yeah. in the next census? It's, so the way it works is I take your, um, it's called a Soundex code, which basically, it's an alphanumeric code. So like the code for Mary is M600. And this code just represents what your name sounds like, which is really useful because like Mary and Marianne have very similar sounding names and maybe it would be spelled differently from census to census. But I take your first name and your last name and I take your exact birth year and then I take your gender, right? Because I also know if you're male or female and I expect you to be enumerated consistently in the next census. And I take your place of birth and that's sort of your individual information. And I put that at the very beginning of my search criteria because that's you. But then I use the census enumerators page to look for anyone who has an address that's within one numerical digit of yours. So like 67 Smith Street, 68 Smith Street, 69 Smith Street. As long as you're approximate neighbors, I will um, add up to 10 people basically who are listed before you on the census page and 10 people who are listed after you on the census page. And I can link the pages together. So if you're at the bottom of the page, I just wrap to the next page, etc. So I add in the individual identifiers for all of those neighbors or family or servants. It doesn't really matter because we're not making an assumption about which types of bonds are strongest over time. Um, and I add that into sort of the back end of your identifier. But these, um, these identifiers, like the string that identifies you or the string that identifies your neighbor, has to match 100%. So I have to match exactly from one census to the other. Um, but what I do when I search for you in the next census, your information has to be plausibly there. <laughs> but someone else, if your information doesn't match 100%, then someone else's information in your string has to match 100%. So it doesn't matter in what order you are or if only one person matches, I'm still going to get you sort of move back to, to context and we've gone through some of the technical detail of, of um, how, how you've linked people. Mm -hmm. The migrants you're looking at have moved to England before mm -hmm. 1851. Mm -hmm. So this is before the age of mass migration at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. 
who are, or can you give us a little bit of the, the broad sense of who these people are who've moved in before 1851, where they came from, and, and so on? Yeah. So one of the attractive things for my study is that in 1851, as you said, this is before mass long-distance migration really kicks off. And the migrant population in 1851, at least the foreign-born migrants, the people who were born outside of the boundary of England, represent about 1% of everybody living in England. So they're still very small compared to the general population, which is helpful for me because I want to look at migrants in the sense that migrants might be different. About half of these people are born in Ireland. And this is because, largely, as we've already said, the... um, the great famine that was happening in Ireland had displaced an extraordinary amount of people, and a lot of them are here in England. I think it's um, right about 50% of the basically 1 million people who were born outside of England are were born in Ireland. After that, sort of the plurality of the remaining migrants are from Wales and from Scotland. Scotland was also in less dire straits than Ireland, but socioeconomically speaking, things were really bad in Ireland as, or in Scotland as well. I don't know as much about the context in Wales. This is something I have to bring quite a bit more into my DFIL project. But between Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, that accounts for the vast majority of the people who were um, in both in my cohort that I developed for the study, but just the general population of the foreign-born in England. But in 1851, there are 90 different nations uh, represented in the population of England. So 8,000 people in my cohort Most of them come from Western Europe, so France and Germany are big senders. And then we have um, other places in Europe fall slightly behind the um, the contribution of places in the British Empire, like from the Caribbean, the West Indies, the East Indies, and some places in Africa are also really big senders. Um, Asia hasn't really made a huge mark on the migrant population at this time, although there are definitely people from China although it can be a little tricky to um, tease out of the census information where exactly people were born. Sort of the further away you were born, the less likely the enumerator was to (laughs) maybe get it right. Um, And then also the New World um, has sent some people, but not very many. Right. And then just to maybe reiterate something you said before, but just because I found it striking when I was reading your thesis, which is that a majority of these international migrants are women. Yeah. which is not what I was expecting to see because, okay, at least I have this image of, I guess, the frontier. And you sort of think, oh, everything's like, all migration is like the frontier. And in the American West, it's all these the men building railroads and, and so on. And th- that it would be similar to that. But it's not at all, that's not at all what was going on in, in this. That is, um, we were all surprised by that. <laughs> A couple of years ago here at Oxford, there is um, Ben Schredder who did his master's thesis, just sort of looking at this in a qualitative sense, and was very surprised to find, oh, actually, it's women are here in greater numbers as migrants than men. What's the story there? And I think among, um, one of the, the main things he suggested, that these were colonial elites returning home. So these might have been the daughters of civil servants in the British empire who were coming back with large fortunes. And that's certainly part of the story, no doubt about it. One of the really interesting things we can see when we start looking at less at sort of classifications of people and you're looking more at sort of detailed social status is that almost all of these groups have a really interesting spread of social status. So even among people from, I mean, it's true in almost every single national context that 
whether it's men or whether it's women, you're getting people who are quite low on the social scale and people who are quite high on the social scale. So there isn't sort of one dominant story about these migrants. And I think it does have to do with the fact that this isn't a frontier. Um, this has to do with the fact that England's transport links to the rest of the world are really good and very well established, even though the cost of passage was still quite high. And we know that, you know, sort of this age of mass migration in the North Atlantic really doesn't kick off until that cost of transport drops. Um, but you can't also then argue that these people are sort of the elite or the wealthy because their social status is quite low. I think in all but maybe six nations, at least 18% of, I think it's on average 20% of um, migrants are working in the service sector. So they're household servants, essentially most of them. Um, for all sending contexts. So these aren't necessarily, you know, independently wealthy people who are paying exorbitant costs of transport to come to England. There's, there's a much more diverse story here that I look forward to unpacking, although it's difficult in the scope of a master's thesis with so many other things going on to really get at what's happening here. I think a really significant thing we often overlook is um, because we tend to focus on the elite almost by default because we expect to find them when we're doing this kind of research. But we forget that if we're interested in the population at large, elite people tend to bring less elite people along with them. So if you expect to find a lot of people coming from an elite background, you should also expect that they're probably going to bring people who aren't as elite with them. And I think that probably accounts for some of the range in socioeconomic status that we see in these migrants is it might still be similar to the story we tell about rich people moving or positively selected, as economists would say, people moving. But we forget that these people bring people with them when they come. Right. So that then, talking about social status, I think links nicely into moving back into the more, the more technical side of things, which is um, how, you're, how you're measuring social status and, and how you're measuring the outcomes in terms of social mobility. Here I'm sort of trying to solve two problems at once. And one problem is that because I'm using census data and because it's very well established that census data has significant limitations when it comes to describing the whole population's occupation. But the other problem is trying to get a little bit more at um, as detailed a measure as possible of socioeconomic experience. So the way we've looked at intergenerational mobility in the past is primarily um, through occupational sector switching. The general way of doing this is you'd break down all occupations in a country into maybe five or six different categories. Like whether you own a farm or whether you're just a casual farm laborer, you work in agriculture, that sort of thing. Or whether you're a seamstress or whether you're like some sort of, I don't know, elite embroiderer who makes a fortune selling really detailed things, you're both sort of in textile production. or And that, so the way we look at mobility usually, or in the past, has been to look at how often sons are in the same occupational sector as their father. And we sort of say maybe 43% of sons, for example, were in agriculture when their father was in agriculture. But that doesn't really tell you very much about mobility, because the, the granular detail of what's happening there, the social stratification within those sectors is really important. And even comparing categories in between those two sectors. So for example, if a father was in the agricultural sector and his son is in the service sector, 
Was that an improvement? It's quite difficult to sort of get at that with those blunt measures. Um, fortunately, there is a tool in sociology um, that really helps us, I think, get much closer to this very granular measurement of socioeconomic sort of status. And whenever we're talking about mobility, it's always sort of a comparative idea. Like, even when we think about mobility or we think about occupation today, you might be interested in GDP and wages, but there's almost always still this sort of latent association with some kind of prestige or some sort of status or some sort of label. Well, we can argue in a different podcast whether or not that's a very Victorian thing <laughs> or where that comes from. Um, but so what I'm really interested in is not so much wages or GDP, but I'm interested in individual experience. So in sociology, there's um, a relatively new tool, um, which is called, um, or it has to do with social proximity measurement. And basically, there's sort of three principles that underpin social proximity measurement. And again, these are like sociological ideals. But one is um, this strange word, homophily. And this is sort of the first principle of social proximity measurement, which is that humans, all humans everywhere, tend to prefer the thing they know. And this doesn't necessarily have to be a direct preference. It can be a subconscious preference, but we gravitate toward things that we know. The second principle is that there are things in our environment these could be social environment or physical environment that make interactions between other people more likely. You might think maybe this is a pub or this is a church or this is a school, but different things in your environment that make the probability that you and I are going to see each other on any given day stronger. And then um, there's an idea of sort of um, positive interactions where you might think our interaction was positive and I might not think it was positive, but where both sides think it's positive this creates um, a much greater likelihood that a social bond is going to form. What's really cool about this is that we can observe these principles in action in really large data sets. So even if you don't know what the social factors in the environment were, you can nevertheless see their result in the population. And this happens when you have really good data for your population like we have for the census. And you can look at both the total of all the occupations in the population, so say like there's, I don't know, six million people who work at McDonald's or what have you, um, and, but then you can look in a detailed way from your data about how often people who are fry cooks at McDonald's and people who are elementary school teachers marry each other or how often their children, so how often a fry cook at McDonald's has a son who's a teacher um, but then also, friendship bonds are also really good at this when you can recover that from your population data. So what you can do is you can count up both the total number of or the total number of occupations in your population, and you can look at how often each of those occupations is socially paired to another, or indeed any of the other um, occupations. This is a pretty basic thing as long as you have the time and patience to count all of those. Um, but what you can do is then transform it into a probability. Given all the occupations and given the patterns that we see, um, what's the probability that a fry cook would have a son or daughter or be socially close to elementary school educator? And this is a way of measuring social distance, how, how socially similar these people were. And this can then be rolled up even further into a statistical measurement of the whole structure of occupation in a society 
that's expressed in terms of the social distance between all of the occupations in a society. The intuition is pretty simple. The statistical techniques are also pretty simple, but there's definitely some math that goes into, especially compiling this one continuous measure of social prestige as defined by occupations in a society. In the contemporary, like for today, we find this to be a really compelling and really rigorous way of measuring social proximity. Um, And it's been developed in many cases with past data, including data for England. Um, And again, when we look at this statistically, mathematically, we can check it with different information. We can create alternate versions of social structure, but we very clearly see a very fixed and regular pattern of the distribution of status between occupations in a society. And this can be measured very minutely. So the data that I use, which is called HISCAM, um, which is an abbreviation uh, for a social proximity table that was calculated for specifically the 19th century, It's calculated to the hundredth, so two decimal places, and it just expresses along a continuous scale how near or far these occupations are from each other, how likely they are to be socially close, or you might even say socially equivalent. The smaller the social distance, the more socially equivalent you are. And what you find these scales, what's most useful in these scales is, well, the measurement of social status, but they can be Uh, mathematically balanced in a way that's very intuitively easy to use, where you give the population an average value of, say, like 50, because it's easiest. Not because 50 means anything, but there it is right in the middle. And then you arrange that um, all of your data has a standard deviation of, say, 10, just because these are really easy to use. So you know by default sort of what the population looks like, and you've given it regular behavioral patterns, like 50 a mean of 50 and a standard deviation of 10. And this makes it really easy for even people like me who don't super love maths to use, where you can say if there's, say, 10 points difference between people, this is a standard deviation. So that's really really a significant amount of social distance between these two people. So the socioeconomic status that I talk about is um, I'm using this HISCAM variable, which is a measure of social distance, or as we say, like social proximity. Right, so we take observable social interactions between people in the past and then use that to figure out how likely they would have had social proximity to each other and then that's used to say where do people fall and sort of uh, is prestige the right maybe that's the wrong way of thinking about it no but, it's, it's uh, really not okay okay um, the great thing about this is yeah. it captures a lot of our intuitions about socioeconomic status that other measurements don't mm-hmm. necessarily do. So you intuitively say prestige. And, and you're right, there is an element of prestige there. But we're observing it through the actual lived experience of the people whose data we use to create this. Right. So prestige is a perception, but we're measuring that perception from really robust data from the past. Thanks for listening to the first part of my interview with Raya Thomas. In the second half, Raya and I discussed the problem of underenumeration, the results of her migrant linking research, and some examples of families that she was able to link. If you want to listen to the second half of the interview, you can find it on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, where you can also subscribe to our podcast feed. If you've enjoyed this episode, we really appreciate positive ratings and reviews because they help us spread the word about the show. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter at OxfordESH, or email us at oxeshpodcast at gmail.com. The podcast was produced and edited by Panarat Anamathana, Catherine Crossley, Julia Greening, 
Meredith Paker, and Alex Wolfers. Until next time, I've been Ben Schneider. Thanks again for listening.